0: Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. And today we're going to travel back in Lowcountry history to talk about one of my favorite spots in downtown Charleston, a place called Philadelphia Alley. Now, Philadelphia Alley is not the shortest or even the narrowest thoroughfare in the city of Charleston, but it is sufficiently small to escape the attention of many residents and tourists. For those who have stumbled into its entrances on Queen Street, and Cumberland Street in the past, they've discovered a picturesque, yet historically mute, piece of the city. The facts behind the creation and the early existence of Philadelphia Alley have been long forgotten by the living, only to be replaced by rumors and fabrication. Its proximity to the city's historic Market District, which opened in 1807, has exposed the alley to a steady stream of inebriates for over 200 years. The decline of Charleston in the decades after the Civil War was especially hard on the small corners of the city like this, which suffered generations of neglect and abuse. In recent years, local tour guides have delighted visitors with largely fictional tales of fatal duels and ghosts in this ancient alley. But what facts can we find about the real history of Philadelphia Alley? And how can that history help us to preserve its character for the future? The man responsible for the genesis of Philadelphia Alley was a Charlestonian of Scott's ancestry named Francis Kinlaw. In three separate transactions in 1751, 1757, and 1766, Mr. Kinlaw purchased three adjacent parcels of land on the north side of Queen Street, just a bit east of Church Street. These acquisitions combined to form a broad, rectangular lot that extended a sizable distance north of Queen Street. Here, Mr. Kinlaw built a genteel house facing Queen Street for himself and his family, behind which he erected four tenement houses for rental purposes. To facilitate access to the rental tenements, he created a narrow passageway, or court, leading northward from Queen Street, which became known as Kinlaw's Court. In acquiring this property and building five dwellings, Francis Kinlaw was not embarking on a profit-driven development scheme. Rather, he was simply trying to create a comfortable and stable income to sustain his family after his death. In a codicil to his will, drafted in 1766, Kinlaw specified that all of the property he had purchased on the north side of Queen Street, including, quote, the lane leading from Queen Street to Kinlaw Court and the houses thereon now building, end quote, was to be entrusted to Gabriel Manigo and his son Peter Manigo, who were to dispose of the land for the benefit of his estate. Kinlaw's widow, his son Cleland, and a daughter, however, were to be allowed to occupy separate tenements on the property, free of rent, for the rest of their natural lives. Kinlaw also ordered that, quote, the fence between my garden and Kinlaw court is to remain forever as a line between the said places, end quote. At the time, the Kinlaw family was nestled in a pleasant, thinly populated neighborhood, living peacefully in the shadow of St. Philip's Anglican Church. Contrary to the will of Francis Kinlaw, his executors did not sell his property in Queen Street after his death in 1767. In February 1794, Francis Kinlaw Jr. and his brother Clellan sold the property to Dr. Alexander Barron. Shortly thereafter, on June 13, 1796, a great fire swept through this part of Charleston. According to John Drayton's View of Carolina, published in 1802, the 1796 fire consumed most of Union Street, now called State Street, and all of Kenlaw's Court, and all of Church Street, from Broad Street to St. Philip's Church, with only five exceptions. It burned all of Chalmers and Bearford's Alley and the north side of Broad Street from the Beef Market, which is where City Hall is now, to four doors east of Church Street. In the years after this fire, rebuilding progressed slowly, and the area around Kenlaw's Court became a less-than-desirable neighborhood filled with small wooden houses. Dr. Barron divided his property bordering the court into seven lots and had Joseph Purcell perform a survey in August of 1797. The resulting plat demonstrates that Kenlaw's Court was approximately 15 feet wide and 370 feet in depth. In September of 1801, Dr. Barron sold all of his property around Kenlaw's Court to the two William Johnsons, Sr. and Jr. William Johnson, Sr., born around 1741 in New York, was a blacksmith who settled in Charleston in 1766. As a member of Charleston's Battalion of Artillery during the Revolution, he was among a number of Charlestonians arrested by the British in the autumn of 1780 and sent to St. Augustine as a prisoner. In the summer of 1781, he and the other Charleston prisoners were paroled by the British and transported to Philadelphia, where they were allowed to reside at liberty with their families until the end of the war. He was, therefore, technically not a prisoner of war during his stay in Philadelphia, as has been reported by several sources. Despite his humble beginnings, Johnson was an active force in state politics after the Revolution and provided generously for the education of his sons. William Johnson, Jr., born in Charleston in 1771, was educated at the College of New Jersey, now called Princeton, and read law in the office of Charles Coatsworth Pinckney in Charleston. He began public service in the South Carolina House of Representatives in 1794, and in late 1799 was elected an Associate Justice of the Court of General Sessions and Common Pleas. In March of 1804, President Thomas Jefferson nominated Judge Johnson, as he was then known, to be an Associate Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, and Congress confirmed his appointment later that year. In the early 1800s, the Johnsons built a row of brick tenements on the site of Francis Kinlaw's former residence and slowly began to develop the large lot to the rear, On the 7th of October, 1810, however, another large fire raged through the neighborhood of Kinlaw's Court, from Church Street on the west to East Bay Street on the east, and ranging from Amen and Mott Streets, which are now parts of Cumberland Street, as far south as Broad Street. The conflagration was eventually checked by the exertions of volunteer firefighters, the Militia Artillery Battalion, and local residents, but the narrowness and irregular paths of some of the streets hindered their efforts. Immediately thereafter, a number of angry citizens began to voice their concerns about the need to reevaluate the methods of fire prevention and fire suppression in Charleston. A number of citizens met at the Exchange Building on the 24th of October, 1810, to discuss such matters and resolved to submit a petition to the city and to the state to widen and straighten several streets. News of the recent Charleston fire traveled northward, and by the end of October, the city learned that the citizens of Philadelphia were gathering funds for the relief of Charleston sufferers. The citizens of Philadelphia had also sent aid following the Charleston Fire of 1796, and in return, Charleston had collected aid for the indigent victims of a yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia in the autumn of 1798. Now, in 1810, Philadelphia was determined to repay that kindness by being, quote, the first, if not the most generous contributor, end quote, to the sufferers in Charleston. By mid-November, the Intendant, or mayor, of Charleston acknowledged receipt of $6,000 in aid from Philadelphia, and by the end of the month, a further $2,000 arrived. During the month of November 1810, a French refugee of the Haitian Revolution named Jean Soleil published a series of letters in the Charleston City Gazette endorsing the creation of a public square... A resident of Charleston for 16 years, Soleil noted that much of the area burned by the fire of 1796 was still in ruins, and over the years had become infested with what he called numberless nests of nuisances. Although he did not own property in that neighborhood, Soleil had much to say about the redevelopment of the burned area. Besides advocating the creation of a large public square at the intersection of Amen and State Streets, he also endorsed the widening and renaming of several streets. Since William Johnson held title to the former Kinlaw property, for example, Soleil advised the city, quote, to make a street of Kinlaw's court and call it Johnson Street, end quote. Soleil's advice was largely ignored by the city and the state, but the attention and advocacy of the neighborhood in general did push forward the movement to improve the area around Kenlaw's court. On the 27th of November, 1810, the Intendant and Wardens of Charleston submitted to the state legislature a petition from a number of inhabitants seeking permission to widen, open, and rename several streets that had been damaged in the recent fire. On the 30th of November, a legislative committee reported their approval of the plan and began drafting a bill to answer the request of the petition. 3 weeks later, on the 20th of December 1810, the South Carolina General Assembly passed an act authorizing the intendant of Charleston to quote "open Kenlaw's Court as a street," end quote, to widen and to extend several other Charleston streets and to quote Name, alter, and change the name of the said streets. End quote. The following week, a correspondent to the Charleston Times, calling himself an old Whig, stated that he had only recently read John Soleil's letters to the City Gazette and was appalled by his proposal quote, to change the names of three of those streets. Chalmers, Mott, and Kinlaw, from the highly respectable ones which they now have, to others without any one cause whatever, end quote. He extolled the contributions of these old Charleston families and urged the city to honor them by retaining the present street names. Soleil countered two days later, stating that the current owners of the properties and the current city leaders had the right to do whatever they judged best, Soleil gave a brief history of the property in question. Quote, Kinlaw's court was formerly the private property of the Kinlaw family. In 1794, that property was sold to Dr. Barron, who, after the fire of 1796, sold it to Judge Johnson, who now stands in the full right of the Kinlaw family. And certainly, the respectability of the Johnson family is too conspicuous and too well known in this city to say anything further about it. On the 30th of January, 1811, Charleston City Council passed an ordinance to assess and compensate property owners around Kinlaw's Court and other streets for the purpose of widening and opening them. This ordinance also formally changed the name of Kinlaw's Court to Philadelphia Street, not Philadelphia Alley. The proceedings of city council from this era don't survive, however, so it's not possible to determine how this street's new name was selected. John Soleil's earlier suggestion that the name be changed to Johnson Street was clearly not endorsed by the Johnson family. Neither William Johnson Sr. or Jr. was a member of city council, but it's possible that one of these men suggested the new name to city council. The street was, after all, formally part of their property, and they had some interest in it. The elder William Johnson may have felt some real attachment to the city of Philadelphia, where he sojourned during the final years of the American Revolution. In his Traditions and Reminiscences of the American Revolution in the South, published in 1851, Johnson's son, Dr. Joseph Johnson, included several passages praising Philadelphia for its kindness to his family during the war. Alternatively, William Johnson, John Soleil, or another Charlestonian may have suggested the name Philadelphia Street to city council as a gesture of thanks for the relief money supplied by that city in 1796 and again in 1810. In either case, the name reflects the ancient connections between the two cities and celebrates the long tradition of mutual generosity. Once the northern end of the newly created Philadelphia Street was opened in 1811, it extended from Queen Street northward to Amen Street. Amen Street was a one-block street that ran parallel to and joined with Cumberland Street, also then just one block in length. Amen Street was closed in 1838-1839, however, when Cumberland Street was extended eastward and widened to its present situation. As a result of these changes, the northern end of Philadelphia Street was shortened by approximately 60 feet. For many decades after this passageway was shortened, maps of Charleston and the city directories continued to label it Philadelphia Street rather than Philadelphia Alley. At some point in the early 20th century, Apparently, through common use rather than by council ordinance, the street was demoted to an alley. By 1952, when the City of Charleston published a list of its officially accepted street names, the name Philadelphia Alley was endorsed as the legitimate designation. Philadelphia Alley is a narrow, unpretentious pathway whose history has been marked by a series of dramatic events. After two destructive fires, And after having its northern end amputated, the alley has settled into a quiet, shady stasis that attracts tourists and residents alike. The recent improvements made by the City of Charleston and the French Quarter Neighborhood and Improvement Associations have given new life to this quaint street and form a promise that it will continue to inspire visitors for generations to come. I hope you've enjoyed this journey into the past aboard the Charleston Time Machine. Kevin Cruthers is the executive producer of this program for WYLA at the Charleston County Public Library. I'll be back on the air next week with more adventures in Lowcountry history. But if you'd like to join me in person for a live presentation, check out the library's calendar of events at ccpl.org or visit my blog, charlestontimemachine.org. Thanks for listening. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.